Okay, welcome to day 235 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 24 through 25 and 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. So we saw yesterday how um, King Joash came to the throne, and it, uh, it's a story that was familiar to us from the book of 2 Kings, how Queen Athaliah had sought to eradicate basically all of the heirs to the throne of David, but Joash, uh, under the guidance of Jehoiada, the high priest, had been hidden away and was then um, uh, basically crowned king as a young boy, um, as soon as he was conceivably old enough to take the throne, um, and um, and 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 this and that this was done uh, by the priesthood uh, with the support of a lot of people from the land, and that Queen Athaliah was then put put to death. And so Joash is reigning now at seven years old. And um, the, the, the account of his reign in Second Chronicles uh, does have some differences with First Kings. Uh, First Kings actually evaluates him as a very good king, as, as someone who did right in the eyes of the Lord, omitting some of the other stuff that is going, um, that, that happened during his reign. And, um, you know, we've seen this with some of the other kings that uh, the, that Chronicles just has a di- has different things to tell us than Kings does. Um, and, I, and as I as I noted, like, for example, with the reign of King Asa, there is they just simply have different stories to tell. And the things that they select to tell us from the lives of these respective kings are different. And so it's not as if Joash doesn't do anything good here. Um, so, um, in fact, in these early, in, it's interesting that the, the same evaluation of his early reign is given in the beginning of chapter 24, as is given in the book of Second Kings, that he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. But Chronicles is quick to qualify this, that this was during the days of Jehoiada the priest. So during the days of the man who had protected him and who had um, fought to install him as king in the place of uh, Queen Athaliah, who would have been like his stepmother, the wicked stepmother, maybe we could call her, um, as long as he was kind of like guiding uh, Joash, um, things were okay. And... um, and and like the account in Second Kings, we're told about Joash's efforts to restore the house of the Lord. Right, that that there, um, that that Baalism had become kind of like the official um, religion, or at least close to it, and that it's not surprising that the temple of Yahweh had been neglected. And so initially, Joash attempts to do this through sending by sending Levites throughout the land. Um, and collecting uh, some sort of tax, and he refers to it as the tax levied by Moses, which would be a reference to the half-shekel tax of Exodus 30, 12 through 16. Uh, whether or not this was a regular thing that would have been expected, or whether or not this was kind of like a law that he revived as an, in an effort to get um, the funds necessary to, to repair the temple, it's unclear. Um, but uh, Joash is dissatisfied with their efforts, the, the Levites' efforts, uh, to collect this tax from the congregation of Israel, and um, and so you know that initially that effort is his efforts at 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 repairing the house of the Lord don't go as well as planned, 
But then uh, the idea of taking a free will offering from the people uh, is much more successful, which I think speaks to, um, you know, it, it is there's there's a message in that in and of itself, right? That that seeking to require it doesn't get them very far, but the hearts of the people uh, are actually more generous than they are when they than than they would be um, than than what would be collected under compulsion. And so, uh, you know, they do the thing where they collect the money as it's as it's dropped into the chest in the house of the Lord, and eventually they collect money in abundance, and um, the the uh, work uh, then is done by the the masons and the carpenters and the iron and bronze workers, and they restore the house of God to its proper condition and strengthen it. Uh, we're also told that there's even excess, and so they're able to make extra utensils. And so this is, um, you know, very much in line, except with the thing about the tax that he attempted to collect, very much in line with what we see in Second Kings. But then we're told in verse 15 that Jehoiada, the priest who had um, kind of been guiding Joash this whole time, grows old and full of days and he dies and he's buried. And so noble is he considered, you know, I, I mean, the Davidic dynasty, in a sense, has him to thank, like for preserving it. Obviously, it's the Lord working through him, but it is through the actions of this man that that things ended up OK with that. Um, and so he's even buried among the kings. Uh, but then um, the the princes of of uh, Judah come and pay pay homage to the king, and the king listens to them. And what does he listen to them doing? In abandoning the house of Yahweh and serving the Asherim and the idols, and um, wrath comes upon Judah because of this. And God begins to send prophets to them to 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 tur- to turn them back. And um, it says that these testified against them, but they would pay no attention. So we do see here kind of like the ugly side of Joash's reign, that the whole reason why he was actually so zealous for following the Lord was because he had, because of this influential priest in his life. Um, And, you know, I think it's a cautionary for all of us, right, that when you have godly people in our lives, obviously God puts them there for a reason, but you don't want your walk with the Lord to be so dependent on other people that once they are gone, so is your faithfulness to the Lord, right? Eventually, your faith needs to become your own. And this seems to be at least a big part of the issue with what happened with Joash. And and the text, is, I think, is pretty clear in indicating that. And so um, the Lord sends prophets, and then the Lord, um, uh, you know, sends the Syrians against Joash, or again, the Aramaeans, right, is the way that the text has it. Um, and they they come and destroy all the princes of the people. So the uh, those who had uh, led um, Joash um, astray when they came to pay homage to him, now they are the first ones who are destroyed by the Aramean invaders. And this happens even though it says that the the number of them are few. The number of the the Aramean invaders are few. The Lord delivers into their hand a very great army, the very great army of Judah, because Judah had forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And so this they are said to be the ones that, that execute, notice the wording of verse 24, judgment on Joash. And when they leave... Judah is severely wounded, um, and um, 
and uh, it's unclear whether it's the king himself or his kingdom that's meant here, right? It says they departed from him, leaving him severely wounded. Like, is that the king himself? Like he suffered some kind of injury. Um, but um, we're told about his death, which, you know, it, we're briefly told about this in in Second Kings, but um, but not like the reason why or, or, or the events surrounding his death. Um, so so Joash uh, dies by several of his servants conspiring against him. And um, the, his end is so, the end of his reign is, is looked upon so negatively that they don't even bury him in the tombs of the kings, which is I- ironic, right? Because, um, because Jehoiada, who is not a king, but who is faithful to the Lord, is buried among them and is, he is revered by um, those who have their heads on straight in Judah, whereas Joash is is considered a disgrace too much of a disgrace to bury among his fathers um and so then uh, amaziah his son reigns and his reign is 25 years old um he has a 29 year reign and he is evaluated as doing right in the eyes of yahweh which is something where chronicles so far right so kings usually when when kings tells us someone did right in the a king does right in the eyes of yahweh they're just going to, it's just going to tell us good stuff and, and none of their failings, right? Because it's always like, um, kind of like a sliding scale. Uh, you do right in the eyes of the Lord, but of course we know that everybody has backslides and things like that. Kings is not going to bring those out as much, but we see that in Chronicles and we're like, oh, well, we still have our fingers crossed, right? Like we're not, <laughs> uh, it's not over to the fat lady sings, I guess, here in Chronicles. So, um, he does write in the eyes of Yahweh, yet not with a whole heart. So you're like, oh, what's going on? And uh, so he begins his reign by taking vengeance on the servants who killed his father. And, you know, the text is kind of neutral as to like their their guilt in this. Um, you know, it's it's probably not a good thing to assassinate the king. But then again, like certainly the impression that we're given is that this is in response to his uh, religious failure, which has led now to some crushing military failure as well. So maybe it's his. They judge him to be incompetent, so they kill him or whatever. But the text doesn't really tell us about like whether it's a good thing. It's just like this is what happened. This is just how he came to an end. And so Amaziah goes and he he takes vengeance on them, uh, but he doesn't strike down their children. So he doesn't go so far as to say you guys and your families are dead. Um, in deference, of course, to Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, which says fathers shall not die because of their children, nor children because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. So then um, we have this episode, which also uh, was is omitted from Second Kings fourteen. Um, uh, but Am- Amaziah assembles all the men of Judah, sets them by their fathers' houses, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, and they assemble this great army, 300,000 or 300 LFs, right, um, to handle the spear and the shield. And he also, in order to supplement this army, hires 100,000 um, mighty men of valor from the northern kingdom for 100 talents of silver. And this is seen here as a lack of confidence in God, right? Like, in fact, a prophet comes to him and rebukes him for doing this. He says, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for Yahweh is not with Israel, um, with all these Ephraimites. Uh, Go, you be strong for the battle. 
Uh, why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? God has the power to help or to cast down. So don't you understand, Having don't you know that that as I have helped your fathers by simply because they were faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. I will help you if you are faithful to me. Uh, you don't need to hire um, Ephraim has issues, right? You don't need to hire them. Uh, it's not the st- the size of your army or the strength of your army. Because note that we right we just saw the Arameans defeated Joash when he was entrenched in his godlessness uh, with a much smaller army than Judah had. So it's not a numbers game. It's a matter of faithfulness to the Lord. So there's no reason to be hiring these people who don't who don't know and care about the Lord, whom the Lord is displeased with. So Amaziah listens to the prophet, discharges the army that had come to him from Ephraim, and Ephraim takes um, um, uh, is, is insulted by this. Um, and so they return home, it says, in fierce anger. And then Amaziah goes and he, and uh, in something that we are told about in Second Kings, he fights against Edomites who are uh, in the Valley of Salt. And, um, you know, they have this crushing defeat of them. And then we're told here that he, he, there's 10,000 of them who are still alive, who are taken alive, or 10 LFs, I feel like. Do I need to say that every time by this point? But he takes all these guys to the top of a rock, you know, um, prisoners of war, essentially, and has them thrown down, dashed into pieces. And you can imagine what that scene must have looked like. And again, the text doesn't 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 um, indicate whether this is good or bad. But notice that right on the heels of this, he falls into idolatry. So, you know, it's it's clearly the text is not saying and it's awesome that he did that to them right like this this kind of like goes hand in glove with what he's about to do this unnecessary violence against these edomite prisoners of war then he goes and the very next thing he does is he says okay we've conquered these edomites uh they you know they worship their own gods their their false gods um, and he does a thing that's kind of very customary in the ancient Near East, and that is when you defeat an army, um, one of the things you do is you take their gods and you and 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 um, and bring them and and bring them like into the temple of your god, or bring them into your own land. And kind of the idea is like, yeah, the gods of those other nations are real, but our God has really defeated them, which means our God is greater, but they're still gods. And so we're still going to, we're kind of like going to move them over to us. It's like what the Philistines think to do. Remember when they capture the Ark in 1 Samuel? Like they defeat the Israelites and they're like, okay, so now we're going to bring the Ark and we're going to put it in the temple of Dagon, our God. And um, that's just going to be a symbol of of like our God's superiority over the God of the Israelites. Same kind of thing here now that Amaziah appears to be doing with the gods of Edom. So he brings the gods of the men of Seir and sets them up as his gods and worships them, making offerings to them, right? They're still gods, even if they're lower than our gods, we're still going to, than our God, we're still going to worship them. And Yahweh grows angry with Amaziah, of course, and sends a prophet to turn him from this. Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? Like these gods, like obviously 
these gods are inferior to the Lord. And, you know, in a whole Bible perspective, we know they're not even real. These are just statues, right? Like, um, but given that you're buying into this ideology, even a person who, who thought that these were real gods, they just, you know, the Lord just showed himself to be far superior, like, and now you're going to welcome them and worship them? Like, what sense does this make? Um, and so, uh, but the king, does he doesn't want to hear this. And he says, have we made, I'm sorry, when did we make you a royal counselor, prophet? Um, stop. Why should you be struck down? So threatens him with violence, right? Stop, stop prophesying this to me. Stop saying this. Um, and the prophet stops and he says, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and not listened to my counsel. So that's, that's where the prophet leaves off with Amaziah. But Amaziah still thinks that he is, uh, you know, almost like maybe like, do I, do I need the Lord now? I just had this great victory, not realizing that it was God who gave him the victory. And so he becomes emboldened. And again, in, in a thing that we do see, we do see this episode in Second Kings, he challenges the king of the north, King, um, uh, king Joash, son of Jehoahaz. So this is the northern kingdom, Joash, um, to battle. He says, come, let us look one another in the face. And um, he responds the way we saw him respond in Second Kings. Uh, basically, uh, we are not equals. You don't mess with me. I have a much more powerful kingdom than you do, Amaziah. Um, so, you know, uh, and it's this, uh, he, he responds with almost like a little, like a kind of a parallel, right? A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon give your daughter to my son for a wife, right? Because that's what you say to a ruler who is, who is, whom you consider at least in the same ballpark, right? Um, and, um, and, but this, this thistle is nothing. Of course, you, you see automatically how ridiculous this is. And, um, and as soon as he proposes this, a wild beast comes and tramples down the thistle. Um, so of course this is like taunting, um, but it's basically saying, um, you're like a gnat to me. I'm not even. I'm not even going to entertain this. Uh, why don't you go home? And but uh, you know your heart's emboldened because you beat the Edomites. But you're not going to beat us. Why should you? Prov- why should you provoke trouble so that you fall? But Amazon, Amaziah, of course, does not listen. And here we have another one of these statements that we've been seeing a lot in Second Chronicles. For it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies. So God has just told, said through the prophet that he would destroy Amaziah for what he has done. And here is Amaziah's own stubbornness of heart bringing about what God had prophesied against him. And so he goes up. And King Joash goes up and they face one another in battle. And Judah, sure enough, gets defeated uh, with every man fleeing to his home. Amaziah is then captured. And he's and so then Joash brings him back to Jerusalem. So here's your king and he's my prisoner. And then he goes and he, tear, he, he ransacks Jerusalem, tears down a huge section of the wall, um, invades the temple, takes the treasuries out of the king's house. Um, as well, and returns to Samaria and just kind of like leaves Amaziah there. Here, have your king, your mighty king. And um, and um, even though Amaziah eventually ends up outliving Joash, the king of Israel, um, he, um, 
you know, you can imagine he lives the rest of his reign in humiliation and shame. And um, from the time that he turned away from Yahweh, it says, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. So now here's, just like his father, his servants had realized that he is inept in his turning from the Lord, in his inability to lead the kingdom wisely. Um, There's a conspiracy against him as well. And um, and when he realizes the conspiracy is against him, he flees to Lachish, um, another prominent city in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And they send, uh, they but they send to him there, and it says they put him to death there, and they bring him up on horses and bury him in the city of David. So, kind of these these Ju- Judean kings are kind of going from from bad to worse now. Um, things are not looking bright for Judah. Okay, let's go now to 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49. Let's remember that what Paul is dealing with here is kind of like the final and perhaps the most severe error of the Corinthians, that there are some among them who are denying the notion of resurrection, that the idea of a future bodily resurrection, or basically the idea that God raises people bodily at all, is, is a thing. That that no, you know, maybe uh, we are simply destined to be disembodied spirits, um, or you know, whatever. It's hard to know exactly what they did believe, but what we know is that there are some among them, and perhaps gaining a prominent hearing, believing that there's no resurrection. And this kind of makes sense, by the way, um, as we've seen. The Corinthians are very preoccupied with status and kind of like wisdom in the eyes of the world which is why Paul repudiates a lot of that right at the beginning of this this letter. And, you know, we can't know this for sure, but we do know that, um, you know, the Greeks considered, Gentiles considered the concept of resurrection to be foolishness. Who would want, even want to be bodily resurrected? And so one can easily imagine the Corinthians, or at least some of the Corinthians, um, to whom the opinions of uh, their 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 pagan neighbors mattered so much, right? Like they cared so much what they think of them. Hey, if they think this is a silly idea, maybe we should abandon them. How important is the physical resurrection, is the notion of physical resurrection to the gospel anyway? And Paul is basically like, it's a non-negotiable. Like you need to, this is, this is, this is essential. And he began to lay out the case of that yesterday. And here today, now he's going to counter like one of the objections that's made, and that is, but someone will ask, and notice how this kind of sounds a little diatribe-ish. Remember in Romans, the literary technique of asking the questions that your opponents ask? And here's the question. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So in other words, like, oh, the physical resurrection, like, so what are you saying? We're all going to be like zombies? Like, is... Are the new heavens and new earth going to be like the walking dead, right? Where, like, uh, <laughs> haven't you seen what happens to people after they die? And so that's the that's the objection that Paul is countering right now. Like, oh my, and, and you know, sometimes this kind of like um, also plays into some questions, I think can be some honest questions that Christians legitimately have. Like, um, let's say, I, sometimes people will come to me and ask, like, what do you think about cremation, all right, or or other forms of ways of dealing with dead bodies that destroy the body? Now, 
eventually every body is pretty much totally destroyed, right? If it, it decays and all that. So it's kind of a sliding scale here. But the question, of course, is if like, is God going to be able to raise the bodies of his beloved who are, if those bodies are completely destroyed? And Paul's basic answer is like kind of similar to what Jesus's answer to the Sadducees are who ask him about like the lever at marriage after death, right? This woman who gets married a bunch of times, whose husband will she be like, don't you know the power of God? Like, do you think just because your molecules are, (laughs) are scattered that God can't raise you? Um, And so here's how he teases that out. So he says, you foolish person, uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So consider this. So literal sowing, right? Um, The idea is a plant drops a seed and that seed goes into the ground and that seed like loses any semblance of life that it had, right? Like it, uh, it's, it just kind of like comes part of the ground. Um, and it looks like it's not part of the living flourishing plant anymore is the idea. Um, so, and, and, and what you sow is not the body that's to be, it's not like, you know, I want to plant an apple tree. I'm going to put a little apple tree in the ground. Like it's not talking about like grafting or anything. He's talking about sowing seed, right? No, it's this little kernel. It's this little seed, right? Then you put it in the ground and the seed will dry up and, and it'll just kind of become part of the ground. Right? So it's not like you, you, so in other words, what you sow, what you throw into the ground when you're planting is different than what eventually comes to life, than the life that actually eventually comes from it. So he's like, whether wheat or some other grain, right? This is always how it is with nature. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each seed its own kind of body. So here's a seed, and it looks totally different than the plant that will it will eventually produce, is the idea. So so that's point one, right? That, that whatever will eventually bring life, um, is does does die and it doesn't look like what it will eventually produce. And then his second point here is that there's different kinds of bodies. Okay, there's different. So you, a human has one kind of body, an animal has another kind of body, a bird has another kind of body, and fish have another kind of body. And uh, then he says there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. Here, I think by heavenly, heavenly bodies can sound a lot like he's talking about sun, moon, and stars, right? And in fact, he goes on to talk about the sun, moon, and the stars. So it's possible that that's what he means by a heavenly body. And then the earthly bodies would be like things that live on earth and they're different from one another, which is sufficient to make his point. But it also could be that the adjective heavenly here, um, it means bodies that belong to heaven and bodies that belong to earth. So in other words, it would not be the stars, but heavenly bodies would be, um, you know, people who, um, because of Christ's death have and resurrection, have their home in heaven. So it's not quite clear what he means there by heavenly bodies versus earthly bodies, but I think either one can is sufficient to land us in the same place that um, in, in verse 41, where he says that bodies differ from body in the degree of glory that they have. So there's a glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, a glory of the stars, and each of the stars differ. They're brighter. Some are, right? So the sun is the brightest, the moon is the next brightest, the stars the next brightest, and even among the stars, you have some that are bright and some that aren't. So not all. So notice the points that he's made. 
um, a thing when a thing is sown into the ground, which of course would be like a metaphor for death, um, it it dies in order to bring forth life. Okay, and then um, number two, um, there's a different. There are different kinds of bodies. There's different kinds of bodies. So he's going to be talking about a different kind of body. And then number three, uh, those diff- of those different kinds of bodies they all possess different degrees of glory okay so those are the those are the key those are the things that this that paragraph contributes and then he goes on and he says so it is with the resurrection of the dead and i love this paragraph <laughs> what is sown is perishable so my body now now he's kind of like encouraging us to think of ourselves as seed when we die okay what is sown is perishable it goes away it it, poof, it could turn to nothing um, it, it can be burned up. It could be mutilated. Okay. It's, it will perish, but what is raised is imperishable. It's a different kind of body. It is sown in dishonor. Have you been with people who have died, you know, and, and sometimes watching death is not a pretty thing, you know, and you think of like how, like, here's a person who had all this dignity in life and, and how here they are at the end. And it's just, it's sad to see them like this is kind of the idea or someone, you know, you see somebody who's been killed. Um, here is a life and it's now on the ground surrounded by blood, you know, and it's just, it's just terrible, you know, and it's sad. And, and there's like no glory in death kind of, right. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, okay? You're about to die. You, 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 you can hardly hold on to your breaths, right? It's sold in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body, okay? And now, so notice here the contrast between the natural body, the soma psuchikon in Greek, the natural body, which is sown, which dies, which is weak, which is dishonored, which is perishable, versus the spiritual body, the soma pneumaticon, okay, so, um, which, which is characterized by uh, glory, by imperishability, by power, the natural body, the spiritual body. Now, I do think it's important to point out that by calling it a spiritual body, he does not mean immaterial, okay? Um, I'm not sure any place in Paul, that there's any place in Paul where the adjective pneumaticon, spiritual, means immaterial. As in, like, you know, it's spiritual, I can't touch it or something like that. Like, because clearly in Paul's, number one, clearly in Paul's theology, um, Christ is raised physically, okay? There, 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 that, that we've seen that all of, and, and New Testament theology, right? Like, that's what the resurrection is. Number two, in this whole context, that's what he's defending, the physical, future physical resurrection. Number third, three, if you just look at the way that spiritual is used, it is often used to describe things that are clearly physical, clearly material. So for example, in, in just in this book, right? Like in chapter 2 verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. He doesn't mean the disembodied spirit, 
like judges all things. He means, no, a person endowed with the Spirit of God, characterized by the Spirit of God. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says he wishes he could address them as spiritual people, not as infants in Christ, right? He's not saying, I wish I could um, address you as disembodied spirits. No, he's saying, I wish I could spiritual mature, again, characterized by the Spirit of God. Um, And then in chapter 14, verse 37, if anyone thinks he is spiritual, that doesn't mean if anyone thinks he is a ghost. No, if anyone thinks he is endowed with the Spirit of God. And so by calling it a natural body versus a spiritual body, he's not saying physical versus immaterial. He's saying um, characterized by nature, which which is by nature perishable and subject to dishonor, subject to corruption, subject to weakness, that versus spiritual, um, characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God, transformed the body itself, not just our, our inner self, the way we think, the things we care about, right? All that stuff that we typically call spiritual, unspiritual. But th- get your head around the fact that like your fingers and toes and eyelashes and, and, and your whole body, right? Characterized by the spirit of God and characterized by power, imperishability and glory. Okay. And then he noticed the contrast between what comes first and what comes second. What comes first? Adam came first. He became a living being. But then what came second? The last Adam, a life-giving spirit, okay, um, who became a, a life-giving spirit. And there is the idea that Jesus fulfills the role of the spirit in Ezekiel 37. Remember, breathing life into the valley of dry bones, okay? Um and so his point is, it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, okay? Uh, Adam first, Jesus, right? The, the, uh, Jesus second. Um, just, just and, and in the same way, your natural body first, your spiritual body second, okay? And, and, and here is, I think, and we'll end with this, I love putting the Christian hope in these words, okay? And I don't think we often think about it in these terms, but one of these are some of my favorite lines in the New Testament. Check out how awesome this is. As was the man of dust, okay, Adam created from the dust of the ground, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Just going to leave on that because I think that's so cool and such an awesome hope. All right. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to being with you tomorrow as I always do. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.